Good morning. Good to see you. Well, hey, if you are a guest with us, we're super glad for you to be with us. We had a great weekend last weekend, kind of a transition season for us as a church. We celebrated and honored Carl. Uh, he went out with a bang last uh, last Sunday. Celebrated 26 years of preaching here. It's fantastic. And welcomed Dave and Amy to Shira and their family. Uh, it's a great, exciting season ahead of seeing what God's going to do uh, with a new new ministry partnership there. And so, anyways, we're we're glad for you being here this morning. Um, you know, dads who made it uh, with kids, like good job. Uh, you know, I always think it's funny, like men's retreat, like there isn't that much of a dip in attendance, even though like the, there's like 150 guys gone. Like the moms, like they're there. The kids look awesome. Then, you know, like women's retreat, 60 women go and like you're looking around and dads are like running in the building and like kids have their shirts on backwards. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. It's like women are very, very capable humans. And it's, uh, it's pretty awesome. So I don't know. That was not really meant for any uh, instructive, edifying thing. That was a freebie. And I'm <laughs> feeling pretty lame about sharing that. So, uh, hey, you know. How many of you love the fall? Like, are fall people? Uh, I, yeah, I love the fall. My wife and I love the fall. It's like, I don't know, it feels like maybe we have like great memories of dating in the fall. I don't, I don't actually know why, but we just like the change of season. Oregonians are like, it's finally not hot, you know? We're pretty, pretty excited about the fall, but the fall is really this time of life where you're dialing in your commitments for the next year, right? You're kind of looking at all the new things on your calendar. You've got a new school year. You know, we've got a new kindergartner and we're like, our minds are boggled by this responsibility of making somebody else be places on time. And like, we thought it was hard enough to get ourselves places on time. And, and you've got, uh, sports going on in the fall and you've got, uh, uh, new community groups starting up. Things are vying for your calendar space. And in my opinion, there's a very big difference between a commitment and an obligation, right? There's this kind of gap between commitments and obligations. We're dialing in our, our commitments, but we're also feeling obligations. And so obligations, I think, are things we do because we feel a responsibility to do them. Like, for example, taking out the trash, completely an obligation in my life. On the other hand, commitments are things we choose to do out of something we value, right? So loving my wife, Committed to that, choose to do it. It's a great commitment. Now, there are times where the, commitment, the commitments we have get us into obligations, right? And so uh, I'm committed to loving my wife, and therefore I'm kind of, I've obligated myself from keeping our house turning into a landfill, so I take out the trash, right? So sometimes those work together. But uh, when the things we fill our life with really begin to feel like obligations that we have to do rather than commitments that we choose to do joyfully, it's kind of a giant warning sign that there's a disconnect, a disconnect between what we're doing and what we most desire and what we love. And, and, and too often we live out our commitments uh, out of this sense of obligation. And the result is when commitments kind of turn into obligations, there's this result. And that is that our motivation begins to dry up, right? And, and uh, before long, convenience begins to trump commitment because nothing greater and more valuable is really captivating us. Let me state this more positively. Uh, Lasting commitments flow out of being truly captivated by something valuable. When you're you're captivated by your spouse and you're just like, she is wonderful, it kind of engenders this lasting commitment, right? Or 
Yeah, you, you love a sports team. They just captivate you. And the way they play on the field just grabs your attention and your affection and your allegiance. Man, you, you commit to them even when they stink, right? And so um, if you want to know what you value, look no further than the things and the people that you're committed to, right? Um, let me say it this way. The, the power of our commitments is really found in the value of what captivates us. The power of our commitments is found in the value of what captivates us. And here's what I mean by captivates. That thing or that person or that reality that just grabs hold of you. It kind of drives you. It grabs your imagination and your affection. And it's you, you are like zoned in on that thing. Right? It might be your own sense of success. It might be health. It, I might, you might be most captivated by wealth. Or it might be something else. So with that in mind, turn to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It's a familiar Bible story to those who've maybe read through Scripture a lot or have been in church a lot. But it is also a very fresh story For those of us in a season of kind of trying to sort out our commitments and a season of transition as a church, and I feel like God is kind of calling us to pay attention to Acts 9 uh, this week. So join with me here. Acts 9 tells the story of the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul is one of those kind of strange guys in history where it just seems like nobody is quite as impactful as him, right? Except for maybe, you know, Jesus. This guy is just unbelievably impactful. He, he penned, you know, some of the most influential writings in the history of the world. He started and cared for churches all over the first century Roman Empire. He suffered greatly for his faith. And, and yet, this guy, this character in, in God's story, real person, began his journey with God as antagonistic to Jesus and the church as you can get. Right? Uh, and, and maybe some of you can relate. Some of you know that was your story. You were like, I kind of hate Jesus and anything to do with him. And then you found yourself strangely captivated by him. And, and you're like, I'm, I love him now. Right? Or maybe that's you today and you're here and you're like, I'm kind of surprised I'm at church. Well, my hat's off to you. I'm glad you're here. And uh, I would hope that as you engage this story, God might do something for you. And so we're first introduced to this character that we know as Paul, but his name in the beginning of the, the story where we meet him, his name is Saul, right? And so he is this guy who is giving approval of a bunch of guys throwing rocks at a guy named Stephen, right? So he's cheering on these people who are murdering a man named Stephen. Stephen is a leader in the church, and he is giving testimony, he's, he's proclaiming the message of Jesus, and he is getting killed for it. And Saul is holding the coats of the guys throwing rocks, and he's Applauding him. He's like, right on. We're doing the right thing. Okay? And then by the time we catch up to him in Acts chapter 9, the, the story quickly unfolds and he's persecuting the church and he is um, he's after Christians. Take a look at Acts chapter 9, verse 1 with me. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, so his goal, get Christians, people who are part of the way, which is their followers of Jesus, get them and drag them off to prison. We've got to suppress this movement. Okay, 
Saul is a, he's a committed guy, right? But just like Saul, we can have commitments that are driven by something that captivates us in the wrong direction. So we end up with very destructive commitments. Later in Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells us what it was that was captivating. He says, let, let me tell you the thing that was driving me, the thing that really had me, the thing that was, that was really driving everything in my life. He says this in Philippians 3, if anyone ha- thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, right? So the thing that was driving me was this thing we call flesh, right? I have more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. In other words, I belonged. I had the right badge of membership to God's people. I was a, a part of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was exceptional among my people. I was top tier, right? Um, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. He was part of the religious elite. He knew his stuff. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I, I would go to the ends of the earth to suppress something I thought was not moral, not true. Right? So he thinks, I'm pretty good. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. In other words, I kept the rules. I kept my nose clean. You can't find anything wrong with me. Now, he says that all of these things are according to the flesh. Now, what's the flesh? In, in, in the Bible, is flesh usually a good word or bad word? Kind of a bad word. Sometimes it's a good word. It's an important word. Uh, right? Jesus came in the flesh. That's a good word. But here, it's a bad word. Why? Because flesh, in this context, is all about self. Right? It's about when I'm wrapped up in myself. It's about self-absorbed attitudes and, and, and self-involved actions. Right? And here's the thing about being captivated by the flesh, being driven by my own self-absorption, right? Being wrapped up in myself. When that captures me, when that captivates my attention and my affection, it can go one of two ways. You can go two directions with the flesh. On one hand, you can uh, be wrapped up in the flesh doing whatever you want, where your authority in life is whatever you want, need, or desire, right? And so you kind of just do your own thing. You kind of throw off truth, you throw off morality, and say, I'm going to live in a way that makes me happy and feel fulfilled. And what, whoever gets caught in the wake of that, too bad, right? And then the other, the other way you can live according to the flesh, that you can live captivated by your own self and your, your, your own stuff, is uh, to be very, very morally good, right? And so Paul's an example of that. His authority here is the religious rules and, the, and, and performance and getting it right all the time, right? Being the top student, being the most successful, selling the most in your company, right? Being perceived as the perfect parent, great Christian. It's about performance. And so you can be wrapped up in yourself and be fairly kind of immoral. You can be wrapped up in yourself and be very, very moral. Are you tracking with me? Is this making sense? So Paul is saying, look, I was actually on the moral end of things, but I was wrapped up in myself. My confidence was in my flesh. That's what captivated me. And the thing is, when you're captivated by your flesh, you make commitments that hurt people. You ever been hurt by somebody who was really just too wrapped up in their own fun and comfort that really, they just weren't a very good friend to you, right? Ever been that person? Yes, right? Or, or what about being hurt by somebody who was kind of so wrapped up in being right that they weren't very compassionate or caring with you on your journey with God. They didn't really grasp where you were at. They were too concerned about getting you to where they were at. Didn't feel good, did it? 
And do you see that when we're captivated by our flesh, it's really bad for relationships, isn't it? It actually breaks down community. It doesn't build it. And so Paul is saying, I was really captivated by my performance to the law. I was captivated by myself. And he was literally hell-bent on destroying what he considered to be a threat to morality, to truth. And because captivation to ourselves creates commitments that destroy others rather than building them, we have to be really careful of when we become captivated to our own flesh. When we live for our flesh as if our own self is ultimate. I don't know where you're at on the continuum today. It's important to ask the question. uh, Does ease trump truth in my life because comfort is what drives me? Does convenience trump compassion in my life because my own self is what drives me? Well, thankfully for Paul and thankfully for us, his story doesn't end there, right? So it starts here with some gnarly commitments that hurt people because he's really captivated by his own flesh, right? And then something really remarkable happens. Take a look at Acts chapter 9, verse 3. We've only made it to verse 3. Some of you are looking at how long this chapter is and you're like, the notes just said Acts 9. How long is this going to take? Buckle your seatbelts, okay? Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he's headed to Damascus, um, which, by the way, can I get that picture of the map one more time? Sorry, I just reversed. Bottom star there is Jerusalem. That's where he was hanging out, cheering on people who were killing Stephen. Top star up there is Damascus. That's a long way, right? It's only a few feet on the screen, but it is miles and miles. Like, it takes some gnarly commitment to make that journey, to suppress the movement of the gospel. So he's going way out of his way. And so on his way, verse 3, he went on his way and he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. What a remarkable story. Um, pretty, Pretty amazing moment. Paul's literally stopped in his tracks. Like just, he is stopped by an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I'm Jesus. He's having a conversation. He's not stopped by an intellectual enlightenment where he's like, ah, now I, there's more knowledge, new information. It wasn't uh, an inward religious experience, right? Where he was like, oh, I'm just captivated by how I'm feeling right now. He wasn't captivated by a new moral agenda or a how-to list of being a better person and how to work harder to be better. What stopped him in his tracks was a person. Why are you persecuting me? Which, by the way, tells you that Jesus has a very high view of the church. Like when you go after his people, you're going after him. When you're loving his people, you're loving him because those he loves are within the sphere of what he considers his identity, right? I'm so linked up with these people, which should be very encouraging to you. That Jesus actually considers you as a part of himself because you're so dear to him. Remarkable. Anyway, so 
Paul is stopped by a person, by a relationship. And it's this remarkable turning point in the life of Saul and for the church because now everything changes. Now, what could create this kind of conversion? What could create this kind of change? I love what happens in the story. Take a look. Saul went to Damascus seen completely fine, right? He had sight. And yet, he was blind to the identity of Jesus. He went in confident of his hatred for Jesus, of uh, of Jesus being not God, right? He was blind to the identity of Christ. And he leaves, right? Goes into Damascus, actually now physically blind, but perceiving the identity of Jesus. It's a really remarkable thing. Sounds an awful lot like something Jesus said in John 9. He says, for judgment I've come into the world. Right? So that, he says, those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Mysterious saying of Jesus, definitely. But what does Jesus mean when he says that? There are some people who think that they've got it all together, and they perceive reality as it is on their own. They're really blind. But there are those who see that they can't really see God, that they don't have it together, that they cannot perceive reality in and of themselves. And those are the ones I open their eyes to see reality as it is. And so Paul has this amazing shake-up, right? Where he is shown what is really true. He encounters the light so that he can actually share light with the nations. You can't make stuff up like this, by the way, right? Like you, try, you read a story like this and you go, this is so out there crazy, it's got to be true. Like nobody else would make this stuff up. And so... On one hand, it sounds completely outlandish. On the other hand, it sounds exactly like the way God deals with us, right? Okay, maybe not with a blinding light, maybe not by blinding you, maybe not by a loud voice, but God does stop us in our tracks, doesn't he? He stops us with circumstances. He stops us with relationships. He stops us sometimes with just a sense of, right, God's here and with me. It's pretty remarkable. One of the things that this story does is it, it tells us something about the way God deals with everyone. On one hand, it is totally unique. And that's what's so remarkable about coming to faith. There is no one-size-fits-all experience of conversion, is there? Like if you try to line up everybody's stories, you'll come to some common denominators, but everyone will have a unique experience of the way God reached out to them, right? God is so caring and personal that he reaches us in the way that we need to be reached. That is an amazing thing. The other thing here that is so remarkable is Paul, who goes in very independent, very sure of himself, leaves by being led by the hands of his subordinates. He's humbled. Because an encounter with the living God is a humbling thing. We're sure of ourselves in one moment, the next moment we're kind of reeling, going, oh my goodness, I am not as great as I thought I was. In fact, God is. It's a humbling thing on one hand, right? Not a shaming thing, but a humbling thing, where we kind of begin to see now as things are. I'm not God. God is. And that actually is very freeing. Now, on one hand, God reaches us very personally. There's all kinds of uniqueness to each story. But on the other hand, there are some common elements to every conversion to Christ. And this is something that I want to spend the rest of our morning exploring Um, Like a rock in a pond, there's a ripple effect. Jesus 
encounters us, there is a transformation moment where we experience the gospel and it creates a ripple effect in our lives and it changes us in all directions. And so like Paul, when we experience Jesus, when we see his identity for who he is, he's the crucified Lord, now risen. He died for sins. He's been raised from the dead. He's ascended to be with the Father. He reigns and rules from heaven and he sent his spirit so that I could experience him and know him. What does that do to us? It captivates us. It captures our hearts. And we become captivated by the love of God. He cares about us. We, we become captivated by his involvement and compassion. He matters to us. And we become captivated by his kingdom and his vision and his justice for the world. We really, he makes a difference and it just draws us. And that captivation of our hearts is what creates conversion. Right Now, this is very important to realize, right? Conversion is like this kind of bad word, right? Where it kind of seems like, oh, when we talk about conversion, it's like guilting people into religion. Uh, that's kind of the sense I get when I use or hear that word talked about. But biblically, what's conversion? Biblically is Jesus is seeking me out, right? This is God initiated. Jesus was seeking me. I wasn't seeking him. And the next thing is God accomplishes it, accomplishes it by his spirit. He enables me to hear him and trust him and obey him. And it's confirmed in obedience, right? My life is different because I've encountered this person. And conversion fundamentally is a radical reorientation of every part of my life because I've experienced the forgiving, cleansing work of God's Spirit. That's what conversion is. And so Paul's conversion tells us what is basic to every one of our conversions. It's really remarkable. Let's take a look at how Paul's story helps us understand our own story. First of all, for years, I was really confused by this story. I'd read through Acts and I'd hit Acts chapter 9 and I just didn't have a place to put it. It didn't make sense because I embraced faith in a tradition very similar to ours where there's kind of, there was at least a perceived formula of how you kind of embraced Jesus, right? It was like, here's this prayer, like you you repeat after a leader or passenger, you raise your hand at camp or you walk, like there's a moment where you kind of say the right words. Anybody else have a kind of conversion experience like that? It's not negative, it's just that it was how it was, right? And so Paul like doesn't do any of that here. You notice? He, like there isn't like a, Jesus, I'm a sinner, would you please come into my life, forgive me. Like he doesn't say that, you know? It's kind of startling. You go, what is going on in the story? In fact, in Bible college, okay, Christian college, preparing people for Christian ministry, you have to like write your story of faith to even get accepted, right? Um, I have this, I'm sitting in my room, with my new friend Andy, and my roommate is awkwardly kind of trying to engage us, and he asks Andy, "Hey, what's your what's your testimony? Testimony, which is code word in Christianese for tell me how you came to faith in Jesus." And so Andy kind of says, "Well, I don't know." My roommate then starts freaking out, like literally, like I watch him squirm, and I know where this is going because I've had a few weeks now with my roommate, and I'm like, "This is yeah, this is going to get weird, Andy," um, and. Uh, so I'm watching this unfold. I'm like, this isn't about to happen. No, no. And sure enough, he's like, wait, wait what do you mean you don't know? And, Andy, and my, Andy's like, well, I just like, I don't know. Over my life, I've like, I've trusted Jesus. And like, I, I follow him. <laughs> so my roommate gets up and he gets a tract out of his drawer. Like, this is a piece of paper that says like, here's how, here's what the cross is all about and how you embrace Jesus in faith, right? And it's like bullet pointed kind of thing. And he hands it to my friend Andy and he's like, have you seen one of these? And Andy's like, I've seen them, but I don't need it. 
uh, <laughs> and my roommate's like, wait, but I mean, have you, have you prayed to, re-? and I mean, God bless him, like such pure intentions, right? But for him, the, he was all, he would be equally confused by this paradigm of what's happening with Paul. Look what's going on with Paul. Jesus says, hey, why are you persecuting me? Right? It's a personal encounter. And Jesus says, get up and go. Arise and go to where I'm going to take you. Right? Go, go and wait, essentially. What does Paul do? Gets up and he goes. Okay, this sounds familiar. If you're reading your Bible, Paul's a great New Testament example of faith. Who's a great Old Testament example of faith? Abraham. Somebody over there said it. Abraham. Now, how does Abraham's story of faith start? Story of faith start? Wow. Second service. I'm tired. So, what what happens? Abraham. Abraham. Right? Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house. This is God talking. Go. Leave familiarity. Go to the place I'm going to show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Abraham. What does he say? Nothing. What does he do? He gets up and he goes. What in the world is going on with these stories of faith? Let me me tell you what I think is happening here. The dynamic underneath faith, the reality underneath faith that drives faith isn't a formula, but it's allegiance. It's loyalty. Abraham chose to be loyal to Yahweh among the gods. So I'm going to leave the gods of Babylon. I'm going to go with this living covenant-making Yahweh, right? I'm going to go where he shows me. I'm going to be the blessing because he's blessing me. Paul, what does he do? He realizes Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. Jesus is the Lord God. And Paul says, I'm going to be loyal to Jesus now. I'm going to get up and go with him. I'm going to stop going to Damascus the way I want to go. I'm going to go the way he wants me to go. He's loyal to Jesus now among the gods, right? And for us, are we loyal to Jesus among everything else? Does he have my allegiance more than my stuff? Does he have my allegiance more than my success? Does he have my allegiance more than how I look? Jesus is king and I give him my allegiance and loyalty. And that is what the prayers of confessing faith are all about, right? And so, yes, we should still pray to receive Christ. We should still totally invite people to pray to receive Christ. But why? Because it's a relational expression of loyalty. Say, I want to be with Jesus now, right? You don't have to know the moment it happened, maybe, but it needs to happen in us. The dynamic of loyalty where we say, I'm not going to be loyal to me and my flesh. I'm going to be loyal to King Jesus. I'm going to give him my allegiance. And when you do that, when he commands your loyalty, it changes everything else. And what, what I want to do for the rest of the morning is I want to go through the rest of this passage and look at the way loyalty to King Jesus changed everything for Saul, who even his name changes. He becomes Paul. Pretty remarkable. So, This change or this transfer of allegiance and loyalty in our lives creates a bunch of shifts, really. Look at verse 10. We'll go from there. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, 
I have heard from many about this man, uh, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has, excuse me, here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias departed and entered the house. Maybe that helped Ananias a little bit. He's like, okay, so this guy's not going to have it easy. I guess I'll go pray for him. <laughs> you wonder that, right? You're like, oh, maybe there's a dark side there. I don't know. Maybe I'm, that's my own cynicism speaking. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, no, here it is. This is beautiful. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Okay. Wow. You know, there's so many places we could focus here on Ananias's character and uh, the kind of boldness that it took for him to, to make that call and go to Paul. But what I want you to see here is that Saul, or Paul's conversion of loyalty and allegiance to Jesus, created a shift so monumental it changed everything for him. The first shift you see is that, that Paul had a change of identity. Right? How do I know that? It's right in your text. Look, verse 18. Then he rose and was what? Baptized. Okay, baptism fundamentally is about a change of identity where we say, I am not my own. I'm Jesus's now. I'm with him. It's the outward expression of that change of allegiance and loyalty that says, I'm in Christ. I'm with him. I'm united to him. Right? The first sermon, the first preaching of the gospel in Acts, uh, Peter says, uh, preaches the gospel. People are like, what do we do? And he says, repent, change your loyalty. And be baptized. Identify with Jesus. Change your identity. You're in with him now. And so baptism says, I'm not my own independent person, but I'm dependent on God for life, and I'm his. I'm united to him. Everything that is true for Christ is now true for me. Right? That I'm no longer defined by my power or my weakness, my success or failure, my goodness, my badness, my attraction to men or women or my job or my family or how, whatever. My identity is in my relationship with Christ, who's bound himself to me. So much so that when he talks to Saul, he's like, hey, why are you persecuting me? Saul was hurting Christians. But Jesus says, no, that's me. And so I am with Christ. I'm united to him. My identity is fundamentally changed. And so we go into the water and we say, I die to my old patterns of self-reliance and self-absorption. Then I come up out of the water and I'm God's. I lead a life that resembles him, empowered by the Spirit, by his grace every day, leaning into my new commitment of obedience. See, when you experience a shift because of your change of loyalty, a shift in your identity, it creates a new commitment. Right? When you have a new identity, it creates a commitment of obedience. You say, I'm, I'm going to live for him because he loved me. Because now I, I was an enemy and now I'm a child. I was guilty. I'm forgiven now. I was defiled, but now I'm cleansed. I was shamed, but now I'm accepted. And you know what? We can't help but love him. And gosh, you know what? We always do what we love. And when we're captured by Christ... It leads to this commitment of leading a life characterized by obedience. But the shift in identity and the commitment to obedience are not the only things that happen for Saul. It keeps going. Um, 
The, the, the next shift that he experiences is in verse 19. Uh, taking food, he was strengthened, and for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. This seems like a tiny little insignificant verse, but think about it in the context. He has experienced a major shift of community. He was on his way to drag these people to prison, and now he's hanging out with them. Not to trap them, but to be with them, to relate to them. This is remarkable. You see, the shift of, uh, the transfer of allegiance to Jesus creates a shift in community, right? To, to now I am, I'm with Jesus' people. This isn't just a jump from I was lonely and now I have friends at church. This is the gospel reconciling enemies. Do you see how monumental this is? That the gospel fundamentally reconciles us across our economic spectrum, across racial spectrums, across offenses, draws us into a new family, a new shift of community. And that shift of community creates a commitment to doing life with others who I wouldn't necessarily choose to be with, right? If it weren't for Jesus. Think about the church. How many people are you close with that you would have never bumped into if it weren't for the common loyalty to King Jesus? And like, what? We would have never been friends, and yet we are like deep, transparent, vulnerable compadres and it is beautiful. That's what the church does. But here's the thing. Our commitment to doing life together always gets thwarted by this gap between our ideal for community and the reality of community. See, on one hand, we have these ideas of how people ought to be. And then we end up very disappointed with them when they don't turn out to be that way. Right? Because we encounter reality. So how do we hold on to our commitments a commitment to be in community because we've had a shift of community. Listen to one of my favorite uh, authors on community, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Life Together. He says this, Innumerable times when a Christian community has broken down because it has, it has sprung up from a wish dream. The serious Christian set down for the first time in Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be, and he'll try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. What? Like, what? Jesus surely, or I'm sorry, just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with each other, with Christians in general, and even if we are fortunate, with ourselves. What is he saying? Keep going. Uh, the sooner the shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. A community which cannot bear uh, or survive such a crisis, which insists on keeping its illusion when it should be shattered, permanently loses in that moment the promise of true Christian community. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes the destroyer of the latter even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. What a remarkable quote. Bonhoeffer is saying, look, when, uh, on our journey with God, we get so excited about what Christian community could be, and we have this idea of what it should be, but it needs to get shattered so that we can truly love the ones we're in community with. Otherwise, we're really just, we're just loving our ideas of who they should be rather than our ideas of who they are, or the reality of who they are. So it says that has to kind of get crushed so that way you can truly commit to loving real people. And don't you know how that works? Like, when, when you put on a veneer of who you are, you don't ever really feel loved. You always feel insecure. 
But when people know you for your stuff, right, and all your transparency, and they still love you, how powerful is that? And you're like, oh, wow, they don't hate me. I would. Man, that's grace. That changes you. That's utterly remarkable. This takes a commitment to be with the disciples, to be with people in all their disappointments and all their successes because we've been converted from an enemy to family. Are you committed to being with disciples, committed to obedience? Are you feeling obligated? Are you like, I just got to do it. I got to go to church. That obligation will always draw us towards a wish dream. But when we're captivated by Christ, it draws us into genuine, transparent relationships. So Paul experiences a shift in identity that leads to commitment to obedience. He, commit, he experiences a shift in community that leads to commitment to share life together. But he also experiences a shift that we find in the next verse, verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Verse 21 When all who heard this were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. He was he's the Christ. Wow. See, when we embrace Christ and he converts our loyalty... We experience a shift in identity and community, but also in mission, right? Where he says, look, I want you to partner with me in making me known and writing my world and redeeming my creation. And so we end up having a shift in mission. Maybe your mission before was like, get comfortable, make money, like have people like me. And those are pretty weak missions, aren't they? Like those are pretty like, they don't... That just doesn't hold you up in the midst of suffering. That doesn't really, that's not something that you can just live your life for. And everybody else is like, yeah, I want in on that. It creates competition rather than community. And so when you're captivated by the mission of Christ, I want people to know Jesus. I want them to experience him. And that's something to live for. And one of the things I so frequently run into among Christians is this idea that I'm like not good enough to be do to do ministry, or I I don't know enough yet. I'm too new to the faith to like share the gospel with my neighbors. Oh really? So like, how long did it take Paul? Like like just biblically, let's just kind of ask how long should it take before you embrace Christ? You're loyal to Him. Your new identity is in Him. And now you're partnering with him in his mission. You want people to know him, experience him. You want to see the world reflect him. How long should that take? Like six years? Okay, maybe like six months. That's realistic, right? Or maybe more like six weeks? Here it's more like six seconds, right? Like six minutes. Like, let's see, what did I just do? Embrace Jesus. Okay, that's going to change this, this, and this. All right, let's go proclaim Christ, right? I mean, this is like a radical reorientation. He's like, okay, I'm in. If I'm in with Jesus and I identify with him, then I'm in with his mission. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have his heart for people. And so when you're converted to be loyal, it creates a commitment to sharing Jesus as well, right? Making him known in every area of your life. When that's an obligation, you're just peddling religion. But when it's a commitment because you're captivated by the love of Christ, then every area of your life becomes an opportunity to just demonstrate grace, right? To talk to people in a gracious way because nobody else does, because that's how Christ speaks to you. To, to be generous with your stuff because 
Nobody else is, but God's been generous with his life. And so you just, you live out the gospel and exude it on every level, proclaiming it among the poor, among the wounded, among the outcasts, among the least expected, among your family and friends and neighbors and network. And you do it out of a sense of captivation. This Jesus who loved me and gave himself up for me. He loves you too. And I want you to know him. How cool is that? There's a final shift though too. And not just a shift in identity and community and mission There's one more. Look at verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. (laughs) What? No way. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he he had actually seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. That's not a bunch of people named Helen. These are people who are like teaching Greek philosophy. Uh, but they were seeking they were seeking to kill him. Again, like when you jump in with Jesus, you're loyal to him. That doesn't necessarily take difficulty out of your life. Sometimes it increases it. Uh, verse 30, when uh, the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now, verse 31 sums up this section. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. I love that summary line. And the church had peace and it was being built up and it multiplied. It grew People were learning how to follow Jesus, not just to know him, but to follow him and resemble him. And when we're captivated by the Savior, not only do we have a new identity, a new community, a new mission, but we have a new vocation. And vocation is like, what is my life about, right? And, and Paul embraces a new vocation, and that is to partner with God and building his church, to say, I'm going to be all in on helping people follow Jesus, Right? Not to say I have it all together, I know all the answers, or, or I live right and perfect, but to say, you know what, Jesus has transformed my life, let me show you how to walk with him like I do. Let's, let's be Christians together on the same journey. And Paul's like invested in that. He's invested in the church being built up because he's invested in Christ. And so he goes beyond sharing good news with others to helping them live out good news. And that's the same kind of thing that needs to happen in us. When we embrace a shift in vocation, it creates a commitment to making disciples, to say, I'm going to be the kind of person who lives my life, no no matter what else is going on, I want to see people mature in their faith. I love this. Like, everybody becomes a pastor in the kingdom, right? We all get invested in helping the people around us know and follow Jesus. It's pretty rad. And, and then we, we go from sharing life with others to actually helping them and encouraging them to live life like Jesus. We have a great opportunity to build up the church in Portland here in a couple weeks, actually. And, and uh, September 29th through like the first week of October, we have this event that's like one of my favorite events of the year where all the churches in the Portland area get together and we commit to fasting and praying for a week. And we share each other's buildings and, and everybody is just invited to get together uh, throughout the week at different churches and say, let's pray together. Let's seek the building up of the church in the city. Let's seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Let's actually seek to see the church grow and multiply here. And we need each other and we need to pray. And it's not about any one church winning. It's about the whole church winning. Right? And winning looks like The city's getting served and loved and people are coming to embrace Jesus because they've experienced his grace and love. 
And so we, we, we're going to spend some time praying that week. And I want to invite you guys to come out. Beaverton Foursquare is hosting that Tuesday night. And we'll tell you more details in the weeks to come. I'd love to see everybody from Cedar Mill show up and just represent and say, we're here to build the church through prayer. Right? We're here because we want to see the church multiply in our city. So as we wind down our morning, as we head towards communion, I ask you to just think about what, what is captivating you in your life right now? What are your commitments right now? Maybe, maybe you've been around church for a long time and these commitments are things that you know, but you kind of just feel obligated to. Let me tell you, this is a great opportunity to, to reorient yourself around Jesus. Allow him to captivate you. And I'll turn obligations into commitments of joy rather than just obligations of duty. What am I really captivated by? Is it myself, my own success? Or is it the Lord who's captivated me by his love? Because you know what? He left his comfort to suffer for my sake. Because he uh, took what I deserved on the cross and absorbed it into himself to pour out perfect love and justice. Because in that moment he offers grace so scandalous I can't help but be captivated by who he is. It, it staggers us. And, and when you're captivated by that, allow that to then change your loyalty, to say, I'm, I'm in with him, I'm loyal to him above everything else. And allow that to create a shift in every other area of your life where you say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to have a shift of identity where I'm not identified by my own best and worst, but I'm identified through Christ and his perfection and I'm committed to a life of obedience. Not perfection, but I'm gonna, I want to lean into obedience each day. Allow him to affect your sense of community, that you have a bigger family than maybe you wanted originally. But to say, you know what, this is my family and I'm going to commit to doing life together with the church in the season to come. I'm going to commit to sharing and partnering with Jesus' mission. I want to make sure my life is exuding good news in every way that I can. Empowered by the Spirit. And allow him as well to change your vocation, to say, I want to be committed in this next season to helping people walk with Jesus. Right? My, starting with my kids, right? starting with my neighbors, starting with the people I'm closest to, and then following the Spirit in each person that he calls us to. I'm going to pray for us as we move towards communion. And as you take the bread and the cup, I encourage you um, to contemplate Christ's presence to you in the bread and cup. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for all that you've done to call us and capture us to yourself. We want to recognize that as we grab hold of this bread, it reminds us of who we really are, your body. Your body, which is given for us to become part of your body. And as we hold the cup, we're reminded once again that you've poured out what's most valuable to you so that you can become most valuable to us. And as we drink that, we are reminded once again of the forgiveness of sins accomplished by the shedding of your blood. And we want to turn over our commitments to you today as a church to the one who rightfully captivates our hearts. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.